Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Performance Solutions at the English Institute of Sport, Mark Jarvis. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 38 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Mark Jarvis on the line, who is uh, Director of Performance Solutions at the English Institute of Sport. So he's the first guy we've had on for the EAS, um, so really interested and excited to, to hear what he has to say. So today we look at triathlon, because um, Mark's got a, a book, The Fourth Discipline, which is focused around triathlon. So we look at strength training for endurance athletes, uh, and move on to, to discuss plyometrics with team sport athletes and endurance athletes, which links in nicely to his to the PhD he's doing. So it's a really interesting chat with Mark, and he does go into some really good detail with regards to plyometrics. We also discuss his book, um, which is coming out uh, at the start of July, as we mentioned in the chat. So if you are interested, you can pre-order that now uh, on Amazon, and I'll put a link to that on the site. Just before we get going, I just want to draw your attention to the South Yorkshire Performance Seminar, which is going on on the 1st of July. So that's going to include Ross Burberry from Nottingham Forest, Luke Jenkinson from Sheffield United and Paul Bauer from Barnsley Football Club. So it's a really interesting evening, plenty of time to chat, uh, plenty of time to listen to these guys speak and it'll be a really good, really good evening. So if you want to check that out, I'll put, again, I'll put a link on paceyperformance.co.uk. If you want to check out all the links that are mentioned in the episode, just go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 38 and enjoy the chat with Mark Jarvis. Hi guys, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today I've got Mark Jarvis on the phone. So just before I get Mark in, I just want to thank him for his time uh, to be with me on a on a Tuesday night um, and get him to do a little bit of an introduction, um, experience, education and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, mate. Nice to be here. Pleasure. So educa- education first, background okay. first. Education was sort of, um, I guess, miseducation really. So, um, I mean, I actually left school when I was 15 um, with three GCSEs to my name with with no no real direction and uh, decided that a clothes shop was the way to go. Um, So it it actually took me a few years to kind of get my head together and work out what what I actually wanted to do. but I was kind of always interested in this kind of stuff. You know, I kind of discovered training around about the age of 14, 15 and just loved the idea of kind of self-improvement and, uh, you know, I was pretty rubbish at sports across the board at school and so the idea that I could actually do something to make myself better was was quite exciting. Um, I finally kind of got back into it at about the age of 20 and went off to college. Um, and it was, I think, a lot like a lot of us in this profession, when you find something that you really love, then all of a sudden you get motivated to do it and actually apply yourself. And that was the, the kind of the trigger that I required. So um, kind of got back onto some kind of straight and narrow um, educational path. Um, you know, BTEC diploma, not exactly scaling the heights of academia, managed to get myself uh, through a bit of blagging onto a degree at Kingston University. Um, so I did sports science there, did okay on that. Um, went off to Loughborough, did my MSc in exercise physiology, um, left there expecting the world to fall at my feet and uh, for there to be a bidding auction on my services, 
uh, found out that wasn't quite the case. So I did uh, a couple of years in London personal training um, before I finally got my first job in sport, which was up at Heriot Watt University. And I sort of split my time between uh, Scottish squash, university scholarship students and uh, Hearts Football Club originally with the under-19s and the under-21s. So I did that for a couple of years, absolutely loved it. And that was around about 2002 when S&C jobs in this country were first emerging. So there wasn't really anyone with S&C in their job title at that point. Everyone was a a sports scientist still. Um, And then after two years there, I got onto the internship program, as it was then, um, at EIS, starting up in uh, the northeast in Newcastle, with some names that uh, will be familiar to most of your listeners, I imagine. So uh, back then, Jeremy Moody was the regional lead, who's now down at UIC, runs the MSC in uh, strength and conditioning. Uh, the other S&C coach there was Jared Deacon, um, who's now in Edinburgh, long-time sort of EIS stalwart and uh, athletics coach, and Duncan French was also working for us part-time. Um, so, you know, quite a few good guys to be working with way back in the day there. Uh, did a year on the internship there, which was fantastic, before moving down to Birmingham uh, about 10 years ago now, when uh, I know Nick Grantham's been on your podcast before. Um, Nick took me under his wing down there, um, and I had so 10 years with EIS now. Uh, started off down the traditional sort of multi-sport route, um, just working with athletes across the board, which is you know a kind of foundation that I recommend for for all aspiring SNC coaches, and you know just like athletes, not specialising too soon. Um, moved into quite a bit of track and field work, specifically with high jumpers around the time of Beijing, around 2008. Um, quite a lot of work with wheelchair basketball as well, leading their uh, sort of national SNC program. And then uh, I was regional lead for a couple of years before I went off to West Brom. So I did three seasons with West Brom, which was kind of, you know, going full circle, having started with Hearts right back at the beginning. Um, then, as I viewed it, I kind of went off and learnt my trade with the IS, really, to be honest with you. That's where I kind of felt like I, I got half decent. Um, and then going back and applying that with a much more sort of mature mindset and a much more open view of what you can do in football. Um, so three really good fun seasons at West Brom. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to leave on my own terms, which is not a luxury everybody gets in football. So I, I got out before I got fired. Um, not that that was on the cards, I hasten to add. Um, and then I moved into the performance solutions team at EIS, which was a new venture, um, which is a directorate that I now lead in my current job. Interesting. That, that's the long potted history lesson. Ah, that's cool. Um, so you mentioned right at the start that there was um, that there was. Can you hear me, by the way? Yeah, yeah. You got a little quieter. I've got you again now. Okay. Um, so you mentioned at the start there was kind of sports scientists and, and not S and C coaches. Yeah. Where, where do you see that kind of role of an S and C coach going? With so many kind of people coming out of university with strength and conditioning masters or you know, strength and conditioning degrees, where do you see that role, kind of the path that's going to lead for kind of S&C coach in 2020, say? Um, I think it's a really good question, actually. In some ways, I think it could go back towards the direction that it came from in the first place. So we, we were all kind of generalists back in the day. Um, you know, I think in football, you could, have, you could have been employed in football for the last 15 years and had uh, five different job titles for doing exactly the same thing. So, you know, originally you would have been just a fitness coach. Um, then everybody wanted to be called a sports scientist. And, and now most jobs tend to be advertised as sports scientist slash 
strength and conditioning coach, which I've got no problem with at all if you're actually going to be a strength and conditioning coach. Um, I think there is a move to being um, a little bit more of a specialist generalist again now, though. Um, partly through economic reasons, I think um, I see it quite a lot in, in uh, Olympic sport that people are moving outside of a, a, an absolutely strict paradigm of being a strength and conditioning coach. I know certainly within EIS um, that tends to be the case. You know, we went down a route at one point where we were very much um, not by any kind of uh, mandate or rule, but it was very much our work was done in the gym, in the weight room, um, sort of expanding a bit more out to the track. And now I think there's guys that do all sorts of things under under that banner of strength and conditioning. So I, I think it will probably go, uh, certainly within my world, with the Olympic world, it will go broader again. Possi possibly the other way in, um, in football would be, certainly my suggestion would be the way it should go. I think uh, too many people are, are trying to wear too many hats in football. Um, and I felt that, that that was kind of how I could bring some value by being a, a specialist gym coach rather than a guy who's probably best at doing uh, warm-ups and drills. And I don't mean that as any, any disrespect to someone who does that. Um, but I don't think that you can be an expert in all areas. And I, I think that's something slightly different that um, the likes of me and, and Duncan and Nick have all worked in football in recent years have, have probably brought to that world. Mm -hmm. I mean... <laughs> What's the, what's the best um, title that somebody's put on a covering letter or a CV <laughs> to try to differentiate themselves from the S&C kind of S&C coach banner? Um, I'm not sure I've, I've seen anything particularly brilliant. I mean, okay. any, anybody young and aspiring out there, I would just say, please don't think that calling yourself director and CEO of a company with your own surname and a one-man band is fooling anybody because that's <laughs> it's very, very quickly. Um, I, you know, for me, I'm actually quite a big fan of creative job titles as long as they creatively and accurately describe what you do better. Um, you know, so in recent years, there's been famous examples of people called head of marginal gains, you know, fairly out there, things like that. But if that gives you a better indication of what they do and, and it actually gives a little bit of freedom to for them, to, because sometimes you can be... Um, constrained by your job title can't you that people have a fixed idea in their head of what a strength and conditioning coach will do um, and therefore they expect you to do that rather than looking at the skills you bring um, I know I've certainly seen that in, in I won't name name the sport but a sport that felt that they didn't need to get stronger and they didn't need a strength and conditioning coach and they thought that would all be you know exclusively Olympic lifts and when we took the word strength out of the job title and said it's just a conditioning coach they couldn't sign up quick enough. They, oh yeah, they're not all ours. Aren't aren't conditioned. So um, it, it it can be a little bit of a bit of an albatross. But um, yeah, I think creativity in the right way is good. Um, as I suggested in some sports, just bolting on the latest fashionable title is, you know, does my head in slightly. And doesn't doesn't advance the industry. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Cool. So just to move it on to your the actual work that you do. So triathlon. So you've yeah. got a book, obviously, around the, the fourth discipline. So just want to tell us a bit about, you know, how that came about and, um, you know, why triathlon? Okay. <clears throat> well, I'm 41 years old now, Rob, which means that most of my mates get in Lycra that they've got no business getting into <laughs> on the weekends. Um, and so having been a sort of, um, albeit very average, uh, endurance athlete all my life um, all of a sudden my mates are now ditching football and, and getting involved in that sort of thing so you know how it is you go around their houses at weekends you see the magazines lying around I started dabbling with it a little bit as well and, and looking at some of the popular textbooks but you know the ones that were always up there on Amazon 
and for the most part they're they're pretty good they're pretty helpful and, and provide a good structure until you get to the bit about uh, resistance training and it's just absolutely woeful so you know you get a two-page article uh, trying to teach someone how to run with a couple of poorly drawn stick figures you know which is clearly ludicrous that someone's going to read that and become a better runner um, you get something in there that's written by someone who's grown up in triathlon and not really had any experience of strength and conditioning or, or worked with a proper strength and conditioning coach um, and again it'll be a sort of a two-page spread with some some cartoons of someone doing some leg extensions and some squats and you think people are actually going to go out and look at that and, and try and take it on and you know subsequently when I've gone out into the world I've seen examples of that of how bad it is um, so I would sit there and being an opinionated young chap point out how much better I thought I could do and, and people would say well why don't you then so kind of just to prove a point that's exactly what I did um, so I just went off and, and, uh, and wrote that book over the course of about six months um, primarily because I thought not only is it done really badly so far but um, I really believe that there's uh, massive merit in using strength and conditioning to aid uh, triathlon and, and endurance athletes in general but unlike some sports where um, without being overly simplistic to some extent you can just get stronger and more powerful and you probably get a performance gain um, it, it's certainly not that simple in triathlon you know I think you can you can certainly improve your performance but you've got to know what you're doing you know it's, it's not just going to happen by chance or by going to the gym um, so that that was the catalyst for writing the book um, and you know hopefully it seems to be reasonably well received so mm -hmm. yeah cool so the, like, you, like you mentioned, the 40-year-old guy pulling on his, his Lycra for the first time or, you know, not, maybe not for the first time, interested in kind of the, the, the aspect of strength and conditioning and, you know, delve into that a little bit. Where, where would you kind of guide people? What would be the kind of first thing that you'd say, okay, let's introduce you to XYZ. What would XYZ be? I think fundamentally it would just be about um, looking at mechanics, you know, just, just getting people to move uh, as best we can. You know, I've, when, I've, when I've gone around presenting to, to triathlon clubs and various groups on this subject, the most obvious thing is you look at the amount of money these people are happy to spend on a bike and the precision, precision engineering required, and then you look at them trying to run down the road, and you're thinking, well, what, what would the bike equivalent of your running gait be? You know, it'd be like a, a clapped-out old postman's bike with a buckled wheel and, uh, <laughs> you know, a wonky saddle. It really would. So it, it, it seems madness to, be, to obsess over the, um, the mechanics of one of those three disciplines and completely ignore them on, uh, on another one. Um, which is actually free as well, by the way, rather than having to buy an expensive bike. So th that would be fundamentally, if, if you did nothing else, I would address that. Um, I think you know most of the literature around endurance training, um, even though it, there, there are some good studies demonstrating an, an improvement, they're generally based on just getting stronger. Um, now, for me, that's the icing on the cake. Like, if you if you've got to the point where you've developed good mechanics, and then you can start to add um, physical qualities to to movement qualities, then then you're really cooking on gas. But you know, I don't think any of the studies in the literature really look at um, because it, it's harder and it's longer term, and it's it's not as easy to quantify as just getting stronger. But um, I think you can you can gain an enormous amount by by focusing on that area. Um, you know, similarly, just just applying some basic training principles. So because you know the aforementioned magazines and books that I spoke about uh, do do reference strength and conditioning albeit not particularly well most triathletes seem to be signed up to the idea that they have to or not they have to but they would benefit from 
engaging in some level of strength and conditioning. Although, again, when you ask them to take a step back from it, they don't apply the same basic training principles that they would to the rest of their training. So you ask them, okay, what do you do for strength and conditioning? Oh, I like to do some uh, some bodyweight squats, some lunges, some press ups, some some planks, except you know the usual sort of stuff that you, you'll hear. Uh, okay, how long have you been doing that for? Two years. How many times have you changed it? None. Like, yeah, that that's literally the equivalent of going. What do you do for triathlon? I I go for a four mile run at the same speed every Monday. I do a swim on a Tuesday, bike on a Wednesday, and you know repeat times fifty two. But you know, there's no progression, overload, variety, any any of those sorts of principles. So, um, as I said, they are they are first principles of training. So it's just kind of when you point these things out to people, it, it seems really obvious, but it's uh, it's not applied in practice. Mm-hmm. So just to get some kind of. Um meet onto that the kind of mechanic side of things so yeah. you've got you've got a guy who comes to you um stood in front of you and you know you, you you have in your mind that you want to improve his mechanics what would be the first thing that you would do uh the first thing that i'd do would be to to ask him about where he feels the greatest gains can come from um I, you know you, you can make various arguments about whether you apply a sort of a, a, a standard template model to how people should move but in general i think you can apply reasonable logic to having uh, mobility around the major joints um, but asking them where they feel they can gain the most uh, in their, their performances is, is insightful and it probably means you're going to get a little bit more buy-in and it's the things that they're trying to work on. Um, a lot of the time I'll just get them to go through some basic form of movement assessment um, which would clearly include looking at how they run um, you know, and one of the fundamental points of that being that um, you know, people. When you see someone running down the street, arms and legs flailing all over the place and leaning forward, you know, it goes back to why those those articles and magazines are flawed. That that person isn't running that way because they've misunderstood the technical model. You know, they they don't think that you run waving your arms around and with your you know your your knees uh, inwardly rotated, etc., etc. That they just haven't, for the most part, they haven't got the physical capacity to produce the right shapes. Whether they don't have the strength or the endurance to hold them, whether they don't have the mobility to achieve them in the first place. So, um, I think just giving people the raw capacity to produce the right shapes is critical. You know, to some extent, um, I think you can hypothesise with some degree. Um, Ability that if if you just you don't even need to teach any running mechanics or do any drills if you just give people the capacity um, that they'll sort of self-select the right shapes because because to a great extent you're you're undoing um, daily life aren't you you know that's that that's part yeah, of the challenge particularly if you if you consider the cohort of people that you're going to be working with in in uh, in triathlon that they're typically middle-aged, middle-class, uh, white-collar workers who spend all day sat down trying to earn enough money to go and buy a more expensive bike, but paradoxically at the same time screwing up their own running mechanics. But yeah, that's live. No, cool. So just taking on, taking that on a level, you've got someone that's a bit more advanced and yeah. they're looking to uh, improve their kind of movement efficiency. What What's your kind of take on what movement efficiency means and how would you go about uh, improving that? Uh, that's a very good question. So I think you know once you've gone beyond the basics, um, like as I said before, you know, do you slavishly work towards a fixed model of how everyone should move and what depth they should be able to squat to, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Um, and I think then you have to start to just to break down their performance of, okay, where do we think the greatest gains lie? Um, is that through, uh, you know, is there a reasonable hypothesis looking at the way you currently move? So, say for example, let, let's stick with the run. Um, someone says, I want to get, uh, I want to improve my run time by working on my mechanics you know i think you have to uh, 
evaluate that fundamental question. You know, what do your mechanics currently look like? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know of a way of, of putting a number on it, but, you know, just through intuition, if nothing else, watching them run and how much potential gain do we think is there um, and making a comparison on that with their physical qualities. So if their physical qualities are poor but their, their mechanics seem adequate, then there's a reasonable basis to suggest, well, let's start to actually you know, put some capacity into your engine rather than just making you move better. Mm. Cool. So how would <clears> – <throat> I mean, you've obviously got three completely different disciplines. Yeah. Um, if, if, if kind of a – say a regular SNC coach how how much knowledge of each of the three disciplines should there be before taking on someone like that I don't think you need a massive knowledge of those three disciplines I think you know you can, you can work with the coach and and their athlete as well you know they'll have a, a reasonable view um, and again you know you need to be aligned with with what they're trying to achieve and, you know, you can't sort of go off unilaterally and and uh, and decide what, where you think the greatest gain is to come from. Um, I think <clears throat> you need to have some kind of idea of of what contributes to good performance. You know, so in swimming, for example, you know the idea that essentially it's your uh, ability to produce propulsive force um, competing against uh, drag. So creating the best positions which reduce drag whilst also creating uh, as much propulsive force as possible will basically tell you how fast you're going to swim. Um, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself a, an expert in swimming by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, if you if you can grasp those basic principles, um, then I think you're you're pretty much there. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I just want to kind of move it on to um, something else that I put to you the other day, uh, which is plyometrics. Which mm. is something that you're obviously um, working on at the minute, um, but just tapping into your kind of background in team sports, maybe with football um, as the main one. Um, talk us through your kind of thoughts on plyometrics and uh, in team sports and the kind of the experiences you've had and how you progress them, how you regress them. Okay, um, I think one of the sometimes I, I don't want to use the word expert here because. That doesn't sound particularly modest, but when you when you start to develop an expertise in an area, unfortunately, it means that you tend to recognise the limitations of that area more and more, and therefore you you use it less and less. Um, and there's a great quote in Super Training, um, something along the lines of um, one of the mistakes of proponents of plyometric training is that they often fail to recognise that there may be sufficient plyometric activity um, in the training program already something along those lines um, and I, I think that's that's very true of, of team sports and football so um, for me I think if, if you look at the activity if we take a, a broad view of what plyometrics is um, and, you know it's not just jumping off boxes and, and bounding in a very confined environment um, and it's it's um, you know my definition of plyometrics would be anything which uh, overloads the stretch shortening cycle um, over and above what you normally do um, so what you need to do to overload that for a triathlete is clearly very different to a triple jumper, for example. Um, and that, that sort of leads to, to why those methods might be quite different. So for team sports, um, you know, where, where is that stretch shortening cycle going to be uh, challenged? Obviously, that's going to be a high velocity sprinting, changes of direction through longer stretch shortening cycles, uh, various sort of jump challenges, uh, primarily unilateral, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those those are the stretch shortening cycle actions that we would seek to overload. Um, and I think by by clever uh, drill construction and good monitoring of training, you can actually achieve all of those quite nicely without actually, you know, quote unquote, doing plyometrics. 
And I, I ran a, a very small pilot study with a, a few young players once. I took them down the track and where we've got the force plates embedded and I, I got them to do some sort of standard classic plyometric exercises and I got them to do some some of the sort of football actions that we just described. And what was really interesting is a um, couple of the plyometric actions, the, the impact spike when they landed was slightly higher, but for the most part, certainly the propulsive component, including um, the eccentric phase, so that's, that's an, an active braking rather than a passive landing, um, the curve was almost exactly the same for the footballing actions as it was for the plyometric actions. And therefore, my view on that would be the idea of plyometrics outside of track and field, in general, is that you're sacrificing some degree of specificity because you're performing movements slightly different to those performed in the game, but the trade-off is that you gain intensity. But if you look at that from the evidence that I've collected there, you haven't gained any intensity, and so you've traded your specificity with nothing in reward, nothing in return. And so you're probably better off just doing the actions. Allied to that, you've also got the fact that those players are probably going to be significantly more engaged. You know, if, you're, if you keep putting crosses into the box, for example, so one of the exercises we asked them to do was um, run in and then just uh, leap naturally as they would do to, to uh, finish a header, which was pretty much the same as a bound in terms of the force curve. Um, so you, you can probably get away with doing that for quite a long time with a reasonable level of engagement and motivation because they want to get to the ball. Um, whereas asking them to do the same thing in a dry setting of just continually bounding and you know, they're not necessarily going to see the relevance, you, you might start to struggle. Um, so I think if you can control those things um, and understand the plyometric volume, I, I don't necessarily think that you need to add a great deal in there, certainly not in terms of performance enhancement. Um, where I've probably used plyometrics more frequently um, would be in low-level uh, prehab, rehab settings. Um, where I don't think it's used uh, as effectively as it could be. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you something then, but when I'll ask you that at the end. So how, how, how do you think that could be used more effectively from your point of view? Well, the, 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 the level from, yeah, yeah, from the rehab, prehab stuff. Um, okay, I'm, I'm generalizing here and, and speaking quite a lot from um, my own specific experience. Um, so, but with that caveat, um, there's seems to be a massive amount of unstable surface training that goes on within football, particularly when, uh, with regard to ankles. Um, and I've, I've had this debate with a lot of uh, physios. And I, you know, There were some great physios that I worked with at West Brom. We had some fantastic debate. Um, and one physio in particular kind of agreed with me, You know, the, the whole debate about feedback versus feed-forward mechanism of, of when you land on the ground. So obviously if you're on an unstable surface, you're relying on a feedback mechanism to tell you where your foot and ankle are and then correct it as opposed to in a, a, a real-life uh, situation where you'd have to pre-activate in a feed-forward mechanism. And so fundamentally, um, you know, the, the motor pattern that you're developing is, is fundamentally different. So that, that was my sort of theoretical argument against doing lots of unstable surface work. Um, but uh, there, I had another guy there who agreed with me in theory but found that he just got worse results when he took that stuff out and just kept it in and and therefore we we kind of both came to the conclusion that actually a little bit of both and um you know the the increase in activity that you're going to get around um the ankle stabilizers is probably worthwhile even though it's non-specific and so the combination comes together but i think if i hadn't added in a lot of low level plyo stuff the balance would have been skewed um another thing that i found hugely useful was um, clearly knee pain is, is pretty common in football. Um, you know, frighteningly now the amount of volume that they, they 
play in, the, in academies when they're younger. Um, you're getting more and more lads with uh, osteochondral defects and patellar tendon issues at a young age. And I found that they get caught in a vicious cycle quite often whereby they, have, uh, they start to get a little bit of quad inhibition uh, through patellar tendon pain. Um, which then leads them to get into more disadvantageous positions so that the knee will start to glide forward, thus placing greater strain on the patellar tendon and more damage, more pain, more inhibition, etc., etc., and so it goes on. And so by introducing some, some really nicely controlled uh, low-level plyometrics to kind of overcome that inhibition, to have like a disinhibitory effect prior to going out training, they then don't get into those positions, they don't accumulate the damage, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I'll just go back to what I was going to ask. With the, with the crossing and finishing, that's uh, that's quite interesting to me. Um, so uh, traditionally, you do plows in the gym, and then yeah. all of a sudden you're saying, "Okay, we're we're not going to do that in there. We're gonna we're gonna go outside and we're gonna do something that traditionally um, a finishing coach or a technical coach would normally do." How, what was there any conflict there? Did you you know? How, how would you work that? I don't think you even need to do them separately, to be honest with you, Rob. I think if you, you know, okay. with the amount of GPS, um, or, or um, not, not just GPS, you know, the accelerometer monitoring that players have typically now, or even if you're, you know, you're working at a low level and you don't have that, you can just count stuff to some extent, although that, that does present a bit of a challenge. But, um, yeah, I don't think you need to necessarily even put on a special session. You know, you might be doing small-sided games and go, okay, well, how many um, changes of direction over a, a certain uh, threshold does a player carry out? How many uh, sprints over a certain velocity do they carry out? And you can you can start to accumulate um, a plyometric load without it ever being anything other than the, the normal session. Um, and the other thing, you know, a physio uh, who's now in Australia that I used to work with, a guy called Mark Young, um, you know, came out with a, a simple but but brilliant quote before about what he thought S and C should uh, look like, and that was just you know give them what they don't already get. You know, and I think that there's there's huge value in that. Yeah, I like that. Tr- trying to do more of the stuff that already exists in football. Like, well, they've already got that, and it, you know, similar to the plyometric example, really, like they're already doing that, but it's it's better because it's actually football. So don't don't just inject a watered down version of that. Give them something discreet that, uh, or distinct that, that they don't already get. Um, so um, high uh, high duration contractions with high protein synthesis, low protein degradation strength training, which is not the kind of muscle stimulus that you're going to get playing football, is probably of quite a lot of value. Um, and if you look at, um, you know, I, I always refer to the work of Cormie from, you know, sort of four or five years ago, looking at um, do we go down a strength bias or do we go down a power bias? You know, most of these people, um, or, or the majority of these players are effectively doing some form of power training every day because it's an aggressive, high-intensity sport. What they aren't doing is any kind of strength training. And so that's the gaping black hole. And so the way I look at it is if, if, you, if you just did a study um, and you only did strength training, it probably wouldn't have a great effect on, on your football performance. But the fact that you're combining that strength training with football, you kind of can get, the way I see it, you can give them a fairly general stimulus in the gym and then they go out on the training pitch and they kind of turn it into football. You know, if you do nothing more than just give them some more satellite cells and then they go out and it, you know, it helps them get better that way. I, I don't think you have to be too clever in terms of the conversion. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So plyometrics, how does that differ for your kind of endurance athletes, for the guys that you're with triathlon? 
Okay, so <clears throat> for for these guys again, that would I think there's loads of value, but it would go back to that that really simplistic definition of plyometrics in um, just simply can you overload the stretch shortening cycle? Um, so if you're you know club level triathlete, you might go out, you might run uh, six and a half seven minute miles. So you know so clearly running is the, the activity where you're going to get the the most impact on a stretch shortening cycle over and above swimming and, um, and cycling so we're pretty much talking about running um, so essentially running any faster than six and a half or seven minute miles is going to overload the stretch shortening cycle you know so um, any kind of sprints strides etc for me I, I don't think you need to do a, a huge deal more than that I don't think you need to be any cleverer because again it goes back to that that question why are you going to sacrifice specificity if you if you're for for, in, for intensity? So with the football example, you weren't gaining intensity. Well, you can continue to gain intensity with other exercises for triathlon, but you don't need to. You can by by running faster, you can ramp up your intensity and and absolutely keep specificity, save for a, a slight change in mechanics, which probably doesn't really matter too much. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think fundamentally that you can survive on that. Um, combine that with some, like I say, some some good drills um, for, for for other stuff for postural control, etc. And I think you've got a half decent plyometric program. What, what what I wouldn't do is get to the point where you've actually increased intensity so much that it starts to become uh, irrelevant. So I I had. Uh, there was, there was one triathlon club which will remain nameless that I went and uh, did a, a little bit of work with, and uh, there was a guy there who had so much gear it was unbelievable. You know, he had like his, his bike looked like a Ferrari. He had all the clothes. He, he'd um, believe it or not, he'd actually um, closed down his son's uh, playroom and converted it into a training room for himself, which is an interesting move. I absolutely live uh, for those guys. I love, love <laughs> them guys. <laughs> It turned out the guy had been doing it four months, which I was very nice. surprised by. Um, and then, and, and this is when I, I told you I wasn't going to rant at the start. I'm going to rant, and I said I was going to call people out. But um, Joel Friel, who is undoubtedly a brilliant triathlon coach, but is not a strength and conditioning coach, had been extolling the virtues of plyometrics for um, for triathletes. This guy had been reading up on it, um, and had ordered himself some drop jump, um, some drop boxes um, on the internet up to about 60 centimetres. Now, this guy couldn't do um, a bodyweight squat without having an absolute disco and his, his knees knocking together, you know. So he had no business whatsoever jumping off a box like that. Um, and to be honest with you, regardless of what his squat looked like, I'm not really sure there's any benefit in a um, a, a very high-intensity double-leg um, exercise like that for a, a low to moderate running speed um, with a, a unilateral gait pattern. I, I think that's... Um, pretty loose to say the least just because it's plyometrics doesn't mean it will work for you so um, yeah I think if you go with those simple criteria of understanding what what the activity is going to give you rather than kind of starting off with your, your classic sort of plyometrics textbook and and taking exercises out of there you know I think that that's something that we're still trying to overcome it's like we're getting there incredibly slowly but you know plyometrics was developed um, I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but you know, in the 1960s, for Russian track and field athletes who were all doped up to the eyeballs, um, you know, th those those are the those are the facts. And um, 
what those athletes required and what those athletes can tolerate is not the same as everybody else. And, you know, the, those coaches at the time sensibly designed exercises which were appropriate to overload them. So, like I said, if you're a high jumper or you're a triple jumper um, and you're, you're smashing huge ground reaction forces but, um, when you're going down the runway or running around a curve, then you need to do something fairly aggressive to overload it. Um, but that doesn't apply to the vast majority of athletes that the likes of you and I will work with. Mm-hmm. So, am I right in thinking that you're doing a PhD? That's right, yeah. Okay, which is on quantifying plyometrics. Yes. Correct? Cool. So, do you want to talk to a little bit about your PhD and, and how you, you know, what you found so far with regards to quantifying what I've just been talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it came about because um, I kind of feel like. Uh, as strength and conditioning coaches, you know, we always used to criticise um, physiologists back in the 90s, um, you know, when you'd have the VO2 max on a shot putter and, you know, you'd basically measure what the, the things that we had tools to measure rather than what actually counted. Um, and yet I see this, this huge mismatch between what we measure and quantify in the gym versus what we, we measure and quantify in plyometrics. You know, so now we've got force plates, linear encoders, all kinds of ways of, of measuring what we do, and we can describe volume load um, pretty accurately and reasonably creatively in the gym and have a, a good measure of what our athletes have done. Um, and yet we seem to just be happy to count contacts on, on plyometrics and broadly describe them as, as uh, high or low intensity. Um, so it kind of felt like there was a gap in the market, if you like. Um, allied to that, there were some a couple of key studies which really prompted me to start thinking about it by uh, Jensen and Eben from about 2008. Um, and what they looked at were they, they started looking at different me- methods of quantifying intensity. So they did the standard sort of stuff with force plates and uh, some reasonably interesting metrics like eccentric rate of force development, which are uh, you know, reasonably compelling now, I think, still. Um, they also looked at um, muscle activation stuff with, with EMG. Uh, and there, there was one particular one where they found counter movement jump had the highest EMG compared to drop jump, and I, I didn't particularly uh, think the conclusion in that paper was was very good. But I thought the findings, um, or certainly the results, were were really really interesting. And what that brought home to me was um, I'd seen non-strength power athletes in the gym that I'd worked with and other people who worked with doing classic plyometrics, adhering to the, the you know the age-old um, imagine you're jumping onto hot coals. And they'd be patting on the floor um, with a very quick contact, but a contact of almost no meaning. So very little force being produced, you know, very little resultant height. Um, and I, I kind of felt like that was a little bit of an epiphany. Of, well, actually, why don't we just change this around? Why don't, why don't we worry less about the total force production and more about the, the muscular activation for, for someone who isn't able to produce a great deal in that amount of time? So, yes, it's nice to get off the floor quickly, but only if you actually do something with it. So I went down this route um, of, of looking at um, quantifying plyometric intensity, did some stuff on, on methodology in the first place. Um, probably the most interesting stuff, well, for me anyway, um, and you, you always got to be wary because a PhD, you fundamentally find it more interesting than anybody else <laughs> on the planet. Uh, it can make you a bit of a sociopath. But um, the I, I collected some pilot data on some high jump guys that I'd worked with historically. Um, and, and actually, it was a weird uh, twist of fate that the first study, when I tried to synchronize EMG, high-speed video, and force plate data, um, and if anybody's ever considering doing that, I would strongly advise them against it because that technology will stitch you up and make you look like an idiot every time. Um, we had some problems with the data when I collected it the first time around on Elite Guys, and um, 
it went wrong a couple of times and I was starting to use up all my credits and I was conscious that I needed them for, for further studies later on. So I did it, um, the actual data for study one on some university students in, in time on a fashion. And then when you compared the data, um, so if you took, uh, so impulse and peak force are probably the most compelling variables for me uh, for various reasons for, for quantifying intensity, which probably won't surprise a lot of people. But um, essentially when you, when you look at the numbers, the, the students were getting pretty modest um, force outcomes. So um, typical peak forces in the region of, of three to four times body weight um, across unilateral and, and bilateral exercises. Whereas the elite uh, track and field guys were getting six, seven, eight, nine, um, even more, maybe up to ten times body weight on the same exercises. And you know when you when you think about those numbers for the for the non-elite guys, um, you know those those are not big forces. You know those those are typical of what you'd expect to see when someone's running. And then you go to your standard plyometric guidelines, which you know still fairly ubiquitous as far as I'm aware, um, of limiting your session to you know 80 to 100 contacts or 100 to 120, whatever it may be. Um, that. Uh, depth jumping is this high intensity exercise that's going to take three or four days to recover. It's going to smash your central nervous system. And then you think back to the, your sort of your 15 year old female hockey player in the gym jumping 35 centimeters off a box into the air, thinking, well, she seems pretty fine to go again tomorrow. Like, that's probably not going to annihilate her central nervous system. And so, fundamentally, you know, th those guidelines apply. If you are the high jumper who's just jumped off a box and applied 10 times body weight through the floor, well, yeah, you probably are going to be smashed and you, you probably do need uh, typical recovery rates as prescribed classically and, and, again, is drawn back from those guys in the 60s. But for, for the vast majority of, you know, normal athletes that aren't um, trained strength power athletes, those guidelines probably don't apply at all. Um, and yet nobody seems happy to challenge them. Um, so the, the way I view it now is... Um, you know, I don't talk about intensity, I talk about intensity opportunity. And, and what I mean by that is, if I put down a 100 kilo bar, um, and I deadlift it and you deadlift it, we've done the same thing. Whereas if I put a 50 centimetre box down the track, and you drop jump off it and I drop jump off it, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's say you're a, an elite power athlete, I'm sure you are, Rob. Class. Um, <laughs> then, then unlike the barbell example, we can't say that we've done the same thing. So there's an, there's an opportunity for intensity by jumping off that box, but it doesn't come as standard. So I can only take advantage of that opportunity if I've got sufficient strength to resist yielding and apply propulsive force. So again, if I, if I step that box up, you know, from the evidence I've collected on the, on the non-elite guys, say we go to a meter box, I can't automatically say that's more intense because the likelihood is I'm not going to be able to tolerate that. I'm going to give, uh, give way to yielding to a, to a greater extent and therefore the peak force that my body has to tolerate doesn't actually change that much. Um, so that, that's a fundamental uh, finding for me and it, you know when you say it out loud it's kind of stating the obvious but um, and some people might challenge you with that but how many people actually apply that learning in their practice I'm, I'm not sure there's there's that many um, uh, similarly I think you need to you need to have some kind of banding to to compare your exercises so for example um, impulse is, is really compelling so impulse is incredibly consistent across repetitions um, with a very small standard deviation and a, and a high level of, of reliability um, but the way the reason I've discarded that in favor of peak force is twofold one is that um, impulse 
isn't actually a measure of intensity. It's a measure of volume load. If you think about it, it's, it's how hard you went, but also how long you went. So it's almost volume load within a single repetition. Um, the other thing is that peak force, uh, so peak force is a true measure of, of the highest intensity that you are subjected to. But also by uh, converting that into relative peak force and expressing it in body weights, that's uh, far easier for coaches, practitioners and athletes to get their head around and more user friendly uh, than is Newton seconds. And it doesn't take as much uh, time to uh, process that data and come up with a number either. So, so for all those reasons, plus a couple more, peak force is probably the, the most usable uh, metric. Now, the other thing is, like I say, you can only compare apples with apples. So, for example, um, if, I'm, uh, if I'm going off, um, say, a 40 centimetre, oh, 30 centimetre drop jump, and I'm an elite athlete, um, and I, I apply four times body weight, and then the next time I go off a 60 centimetre box and I apply um, eight times body weight, doing two of the 30 centimetre box is not the same, clearly, as one of the 60 centimetre box. So you can't just do as you would do in, in strength training and regard it as all homogenous and kind of mix it all up and put it together and go, that that's my total... Um, total level of, of stress with a session so um, it's something that I'm still working on but some some kind of bandwidth of uh, you know whether that's really simplistic of high medium or low or within a certain number of body weights but um, that that's fundamentally vital for for being able to compare intensities across sessions and across exercises I'm really sorry to absolutely drag it down to my level but um, we're talking about a, a lot of um, data that's collected with force plates yeah. So for the for the guy that's um, not got access access to the force plates before yeah. all your fabulous work is actually finished, what is the best way to be quantifying um, plyometrics up until then? Well, if you haven't got a force plate, Rob, you're dead to me. <laughs> no, uh, it, it's a really good point, and it's it's um, something that someone's asked me in the past. Um, my my answer to that would be that um, I think you know gold standard. Well. Gold, gold standard is probably not attainable. Gold standard would be that you probably need to be able to measure um, every repetition. Um, but for, for a bunch of reasons, that's that's not practical. Um, I think it would be, uh, where possible, it would be useful to have some kind of indication of your um, your plyometric strength levels, as I would, I would call them. So what's someone actually capable of applying? So you've got um, a, a half-decent educated guess of what's going to happen when they go off a box. Failing that, which I, I accept is still... You know, reality for you know probably more coaches than it isn't. Um, I think as as the findings come out, and as I as I, as I publish stuff, and you get some kind of idea of what athlete, what level of athlete will be able to produce, making an assumption that okay, well my guy sounds most like this guy, so that's probably what he's going to go and apply. So, like I say, um, what I found is you know recreationally active uh, strength and conditioning students are putting three to four times body weight through even uh, pretty talented footballers are maybe pushing up towards five five and a half times body weight on, on the majority of these exercises um, and then high jumpers triple jumpers sprinters etc um, certainly at, at you know national and international level you're talking different gravy but um, that that should give you a reasonable indication of, of what your guy is going to do certainly would move you beyond at the moment just going off a kind of a one-size-fits-all you know drop jumps are really intense you need five days off kind of you know mm -hmm. cool very interesting so I just want to kind of round it up but I know that you've got a second book out so do you want to tell us the 
the kind of thought behind the book, you know, what it's about and where people can get it and when they can get it. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I guess in, in some ways it's very different to the triathlon book um, and in some ways it's very similar. So it, it, the reason I think, I think it's similar is that it just t- tries to take a step back and go, what actually will make a difference in this sport and, and how can we construct a strength and conditioning program around that. Um, it's written primarily for coaches. Uh, the publisher won't thank me for saying that. Um, I wanted to call it uh, strength and conditioning for professional football or for elite football because it's, it's written for people working in a, a professional environment primarily um, as opposed to, you know, whereas the triathlon one is more about um, a weekend warrior can pick that up and get some idea of strength and conditioning as well as hopefully strength and conditioning coaches. Um, I don't expect everyone in, in Sunday league football to read this and, and try and get better, um, partly just because that's, that's not that particular creature. Um, although hopefully you would still learn something if you, you were interested in strength and conditioning. Um, but fundamentally it came about, so um, uh, Dave Redding presented to us um, when I was an EIS S&C coach quite a few years ago and talked about this concept of, of writing your own book. You know, what would, if, if you're a strength and conditioning coach, you know, uh, write your book, what would the chapters be, what would go into your book and, and really build your own system, um, which I think is unbelievably good advice um, you know I took that on pretty much from the next day that he said that um, and I always recommend strength and conditioning coaches do that so it just allows you to build your own systems and your own philosophies and um, you know as Dave pointed out at the time if, if you've got that and you've got a, a proper system that you understand you're not going to be as um, subjected to you know the ebb and flow of going to a conference and someone presents their their paradigm and, and you sort of you know, fling all the way over this way, and then the next day you hear something else. You can you can basically look at it, hold it up, and contrast it to your system. Work out uh, if and how you can assimilate any ideas of that into your own system, or you know, reject or accept them on that basis. And you've got something consistent that that you understand. And and that's something I tried to do throughout my three years at West Brom was continually build up systems. And you know, you, you don't get a huge amount of player contact time in football certainly not in the gym and so I was constantly trying to make it a live experiment uh, as much for my own uh, interest as much as anything else you know it would have been reasonably easy to just sort of pedal stuff through and you know nobody was at a hugely advanced level of strength and conditioning so um, I, I continued to try to build these systems and I put together a philosophy document of about 20,000 words um, and then at the end of it it just got to the point where um, I thought it would be nice to sort of draw that all together um, so there were certain chapters that I thought I hadn't quite finished off or that I could expand and when it was just for my own um, interest it, it, it didn't really merit spending an afternoon writing stuff that I knew I already knew but it's quite nice to sort of put it all together and having gone through the, the process of writing the triathlon book I was fairly confident of, of the process of doing that um, and it's, it's rare that you get that opportunity to sort of sit down and, and really um, not just have the stuff that you think off the top of your head, but really go, okay, what do I properly think about developing running mechanics or preventing hamstring injuries? Um, and I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to this will relate to this. Anyone who's ever done a presentation or, or written something for public consumption, that um, you tend to write these things with the per- with your biggest critic reading it in mind. So you know you want to make sure that it's half decent. And uh, so anyone who chooses to be a detractor from you doesn't have any uh, any ammunition because you know you're, you're kind of exposing yourself by putting it out there because. Um, probably even worse than presentations actually you know there's, there's no right of reply if someone's uh, sat there on their sofa reading your book and they, they decide that it's a load of old pony you're, you're not going to be there to uh, defend yourself so you, you need to do a good job first time out so 
And that's fundamentally what it's about. Um, and, you know, I, I was lucky that I had a really strong brief of when I went into West Brom of um, this is how you're going to have an impact. And it, it, it's kind of written along those lines that this is how I, I see um, people benefiting football. So m much like triathlon, I think, I think there's huge things that strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and I, when I say that in this context, I'm talking about gym-based strength and conditioning primarily. And I do talk about that in the book, um, you know, whether you can be a generalist or not. But um, yeah, I think that there's a huge benefit in that and you, you can bring a huge amount to a team, but you need to understand why and how um, and you need to know what you're doing. You know, it's not just going to happen by, by chance. You know, they, I think too often coaches end up doing stuff that's not really movement, it's not really injury prevention, it's not really strength training. It's what I call that sort of grey mulch, you know, when there's sort of someone's doing a very, very average squat with a very, very average weight and you think, well, what what you're actually changing there? What you what you're really improving? Because you know they, they've just kind of done some stuff because they could get away with it rather than really you know nailing down. This is what I'm going to achieve here. So when is when's the book out, Mark? Uh, very good point. I'm glad you asked. It <laughs> is uh, it's officially released on the second of July, but um, I'm reliably informed that it is available for pre-order on Amazon now. Is the shameless plug? Cool. No, no, I'll I'll. Not shameless at all. Um, I'll put the um, I'll put a link up on the site so people can people can pre-order or wait Thank and you. order or do whatever they wish. Um, so you're on Twitter as well. People I am. Can, yes. People can catch you on there. Yeah, at MMJ Training. Happy days. So I'll again I'll put the link on the uh, on the site so people can people can ask you questions and uh, on the back of the episode or about the book. Uh, and I'm sure you'd be happy to uh, answer people on there. Always happy to get involved in the dialogue, mate. Cool. Well, I'll I'll round it up there and just thank you for your time. It's been great to chat. And after all these number 39, 40, whatever it may be, when it actually goes out, I actually realise that I know absolutely jack shit. So that's um, that's cool. I'm all right with that. <laughs> Absolute pleasure, and um, I won't be offended. It took you 38 people before me to get any <laughs> No worries, mate. All right, thanks very much for your time. Cheers. See you, pal. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 38 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. You can check out all that's going on in the podcast if you go to paceyperformance.co.uk and you can check out all the links mentioned in the episode at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 38. You can also follow me on Twitter at PaceyPerform and keep up to date with everything that's going on the podcast amongst other things on there. And I will see you in episode 39.